Welcome everybody to the latest episode of Streamed and Screened, the award-winning podcast. We won the best podcast in Iowa from the, the Iowa Newspaper Association. Iowa Newspaper Association. I mean, well-deserving, if I do say so myself. When does the trophy show up? Do we get a plaque? It's a certificate. We gotta frame it, it'll be okay. They have to first print it out on the printer. That's fine by me. Um, and yeah, the voice you're hearing, that is Bruce Miller, who uh, has been a entertainment reporter for, for many years. He's now the editor of the Sioux City Journal. We also have Jared McNett from the Sioux City Journal, a reporter, formerly of the, the Globe Gazette. And uh, me, Chris Lay, I am the podcast operations manager for Lee Enterprises based in Madison, Wisconsin. And, and we all love movies and we're here to talk about them. Formalities out of the way. <laughs> Let's be talking memory because I actually, as much as I don't want to go to something like that, I went to that. I, that, was, that was the same thing with me. Right? It wasn't like on the top of your list where you say, oh, this weekend, we must go see memory. We went because we thought we could talk about it and talk about it, we will. Of the three of us, I'm the only one who did not see it. So I will hand the proverbial talking stick to, to the two of you to, to back and forth uh, talking about memory. You want to give a, a quick little intro on what it is and who it's by and who it stars? Jared, you go. So it uh, is directed by uh, Martin Campbell, who uh, did Casino Royale. He also did, I think, one or both of the Zorro movies from like the late 90s, early 2000s. And then more recently, he did The Foreigner with uh, Jackie Chan and uh, Pierce Brosnan, which I actually liked quite a bit. And then uh, last year he did the protege, which didn't do the best at the box office, but he's got like an action uh, pedigree and it stars uh, Liam Neeson and uh, Don Johnson. Uh, those are probably the two, or no, sorry, not Don Johnson. I'm thinking of a completely uh, different movie, my bad. Uh, it's got Liam Neeson, Guy Pierce, uh, Monica Bellucci and a couple other folks. Getting your, your red box titles confused. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. But no, and so basically uh, Liam Neeson plays this like hitman for hire who we find out has like Alzheimer's or some other kind of memory problems and stuff kind of spirals out from there. And the, the only reason I ended up going and seeing this yesterday is because I had some free time on my Sunday and I like the director enough and I will go see certain ones of these Liam Neeson movies if the premise like is interesting enough to me and the idea of like a, a hitman who's having memory problems was, was intriguing enough. And so that's kind of why I went and it was fine. Like some of the action was not very believable. There's like a scene where Liam Neeson gets in a shootout in a parking garage where he just like starts walking toward the guy he's in a shootout with and just keeps shooting at him as he's walking towards the guy, no cover like whatsoever and somehow doesn't get hit once. So that was a little bit ridiculous. I think my two big problems with it were the last little bit of it felt kind of rushed. And they didn't pay off on the premise as much as they could have. Like, it's clear that he's having memory problems and it pops up once or twice. But I think it was just kind of an add-on to the movie as opposed to, like, kind of really integrated into the plot. Which is disappointing because I think you could have done something even more interesting with that premise for a movie like this. But uh, it did not deliver in that regard. It was so stupid. <laughs> First, I want to know, he's got these pills, right? He carries this pill bottle with him to kind of help him remember a little better. So these pill bottles suddenly drop out. They're like on the ground and they're kind of a way to track where he is. Now, I want to know 
who gets a prescription like that? Because whenever I've gotten any kind of controlled substance, boy, they don't let you have it until the last one's out. And so the idea that these memory pills are apparently, you can get them just in bulk is beyond me. So then everybody said, well, look, I think I see a pill bottle in the crime scene. Let's look at that and see whose name might be on that. That is so stupid. The other thing I noticed is that the sound is so loud when they're walking, it's like clomp, 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 clomp on any kind of floor. So the sound guy must have been new in terms of putting in footsteps because they were louder than you could believe. Plus, everybody has a glass of wine at some point, especially those women that are kind of disgruntled about the men in their lives, the real housewives of El Paso. They're sitting with a tall poor and it's like, are you going to eat that pitcher of, uh, of wine or what are you going to do with it? I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of wine drinking in this movie right? for some reason. And the actresses who play those wives up, you're thinking, hmm, are one of these involved somehow with this? Because they, they I, I know my husband's out with another woman tonight. Sip, 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 sip. I know who she is. And you're thinking, oh, she's going to be the killer. I bet she'll be a killer. Nope, not a killer. Not a killer at all. And so there's like a sex trafficking ring with kids. And it's just, it's stupid. The brother who has Alzheimer's, you don't get a word out of him. You see him in a chair a couple of times. And you don't realize, you know, could you tell us something? Is there a clue here? And I think Guy Pierce is only in this because they remembered, hey, he was in Memento. That was a good memory film. Let's put him in this one and maybe people will be duped into thinking that memory is the same as Memento. I'm glad you mentioned the, the sound thing too, Bruce, because I like I, it's hard for me to tell sometimes if like there's just sound problems in like a theater I am in or whatever. But some of the sound mixing in this was really bad. Like, like you were talking about... But then some of the other dialogue, like I had trouble understanding what they were saying. Like it was like really hard to hear for like no real good reason. So that drove me up a wall. And then, yeah, you mentioned that child trafficking plays a part in this. And so does like border policy stuff too. And like something felt wrong about that, but I couldn't figure out what it was, but it just didn't, it felt weird to have that as like a plot premise for some reason in a movie like this. It gets muddy at some point where you're thinking, are we taking a political statement here or are we just kind of throwing everything we can because, hey, it's El Paso. But the walking thing, just why this is, if you are going and please go for this reason only, they will be walking and you'll hear walk, 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 walk. And then there's like a couple more walks, but they've already reached the destination. Like there's a guy coming up behind a table and he's, He's going to walk in place a couple of times just so they get two more steps in. It's like stupid. So they didn't even clean it up before they they sent it out. It was like, here you go. It's it's a Liam Neeson thing. He's watching after kids. Got to be good. I mean, you hear about critics complaining about artists and directors and editors and whatever phoning things in. But this is the first time I think I've heard a really consistent criticism of the Foley department. <laughs> well, watch, you'll see what I mean. Because I wasn't expecting, that's usually so out of your, your realm, you don't think about it. And it sounds like they're on wooden boxes when they're walking, you know, so it's louder than normal. And it isn't like 
is every room hollow underneath? I don't know what's going on here, but it is what it is. So you're suggesting that memory was forgettable. Indeed. Yes. And that's all <laughs> I think we can maybe we need to say about that. I, don't know. <laughs> I hate to kill it on not using a perfect button, but the other thing I would say is that it does kind of bum me out that like this stuff isn't either better or way worse because like if it was way worse, it would be more fun. And if it was better, I would be delighted by that. But like, it's just at a level where like Liam Neeson movies like this are never going to be a red box because they're a little bit too competent for that, but they're not competent enough to ever be like the action movie of the year anymore. They're just in this no man's land. Sloppy. Yeah. There you go. I mean, you kind of wish that they'd have a, a sense of humor about themselves and you know, when you look at the, the director's other works as, as good or competent or whatever as they are, they don't seem to be very, I mean, self-aware is not something that you could say about them, I guess. No. The, I mean, the Bond films are, of which he's directed a couple, uh, the Bond films are notoriously uh, <laughs> self-serious. The big movie coming out this weekend that every other big summer blockbuster seems to have avoided this date is... The new Doctor Strange movie, which is the latest addition to the Marvel Cinematic Universe following Spider-Man. Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. We love multiverses now. The kids are all about them. They love multiverses. They love metaverses. They don't like universes. Universes, that's too singular. You need to expand beyond that. Exactly. The main plot of this is going to be following on the, on the heels of the most recent Spider-Man film where at the end of that, the, the multiverse intrudes upon all the other verses. Uh, there's a breakdown of all the barriers and it's on Dr. Strange to unify everything and undo the, the mistakes that, that led to uh, him more or less causing this, this breakdown of uh, coherence. It's going to tie all the way back to WandaVision, the first Marvel TV show on Disney Plus is going to play a role. And yeah, it seems like it's going to be pretty interesting. It's also going to be the first of the Marvel Universe films to acknowledge the, the Fox mutant movies. This is not a spoiler or anything. He's listed in the cast, but Patrick Stewart is going to be there as some version of Professor Xavier from the X-Men. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know what else to, to necessarily say about this as far as, you know, plot and air though. I do. You care. Yeah. Do you care, Jared? I'm mostly pretty out at this point. Like, I don't know that I'm going to necessarily go and see this. The only thing at this point, and I would just wait until it happens probably years from now because they'll take forever to build to it, is if they are eventually going to have the X-Men in these, I would eventually watch a movie that has, like, the X-Men, like, fighting the Avengers or something like that. But other than that, I'm, I'm kind of out. Not to be the uh, dampener of this uh, celebration of Strange. I think there's too many things to connect. I don't care. I don't want to have to think that hard, especially with these kinds of films. And I've never liked Dr. Strange as a character. So the idea that he is any kind of glue for anything, I just want to, I see where his face kind of comes apart. And I'm thinking, good, we'll be rid of him. Then I don't have to have him around anymore. Uh, he's in it for the long haul. He's going to be around for a long time, especially since Robert Downey Jr. is only around maybe occasionally as some throwback memory version of himself and 
I think the, the Marvel universe going forward is going to be very Dr. Strange and Spider-Man centric uh, to, to a degree. And those two are kind of closely related at this point. I'm, I mean, I, I understand all the criticism and I'm, I'm certainly not, I mean, there, there's also a lot of toxicity around some of the, the Marvel fi- cinematic universe discourse. And I'm not that passionate, but I mean, I'm, I'm an old school comic book nerd where the, the way that everything interconnects is, is a, the, the complexities of, of all the narrative intrusions and, you know, layers and interactions is, it's a feature. It's not a bug as far as I'm concerned. So I'm intrigued to see how they do it. And also, I mean, we haven't mentioned this yet, but I mean, Sam Raimi is back in the saddle for a superhero film since his last Spider-Man film. Uh, and this is supposed to be a more horrific version of that, more a horror genre affected film in, in the Marvel universe than, than we've seen so far. That has yet to be seen because I think the original director failed, I think, because he, he wasn't going to be getting as much of a, a horror version as, as he could. And uh, now instead, he's uh, making uh, The Black Phone, which uh, I'm very excited about. And it's gonna that be looked a, good. A great horror movie. Yeah. I saw previews for that and I thought that looks kind of fun. Yeah. And that's coming out in, I think like a month or two. That's another, like one of those sort of summer. I don't know if it, is it a Blumhouse film? I think it's a Blumhouse film. It is. It, it is. is. Yeah. It seems like it's very much in that Blumhouse, uh, very low budget, but high concept. Yep. Well executed. But yeah, based on everything that Marvel's done so far that has bumped up against the the horror genre, it's most notably right now is the Moon Knight show that's on wrapping up this week, I think. I think it's a six episode thing. It's either this week or next week. And that hasn't quite paid off, I think, as horrific as as they would have wanted. But I mean, it's Disney. So, you know, only going to get so far. Yeah, I'm... I got my tickets. I'm going to go see it. I'm, I'm intrigued to, to see how they tie everything together. Uh, and of the Marvel films so far, the ones that Sam Raimi has been attached to are the ones that show the most autoristic aesthetic, I guess, running through them. The effects look amazing. And based on the previous Doctor Strange movies and the most recent Spider-Man movie, we're just going to get more of that. So if you're on board, you're on board. And if you're not, it's also perfectly fine to not be, in in my opinion. I know they would never do it because of just the nature of how like high profile these are. I almost kind of wish since they do have Sam Raimi that it would have been like a lot more practical effects because uh, nobody can do that quite like uh, Sam Raimi. Just give him some like buckets of blood and some you know like fake scars and like gunshot wounds or whatever else, and that's all you need. And Sam Raimi can do you just fine. Bruce Campbell also is in the cast list, and I'm not sure. I've denied myself knowing what role he plays and to what uh, capacity, but I'm, I'm always happy to see. Maybe they'll bring him back as the announcer for the, the Bone Crusher, you know, wrestling match or something. I don't know. But in a multiverse, you could be anything. You could be yep. anything. Exactly. You could have, you know, hot dogs for fingers. There could be a version of that. Well, speaking of metaverses, there is a new show coming out on Netflix that is called the Pentaver, Pentaverus? Pentaverit. Yeah, the Pentaverit, which is going to be SNL legend, Austin Powers himself, Mike Myers' return to anything. Really, he's been out of the mix for quite some time. And looks like it's him playing anywhere between a dozen to two dozen roles. Also has Jeremy Irons involved. 
It looks like it's going to be real middle of the road based on the trailer, but conceptually it's huge. Uncovering a global world order level conspiracy type theory. This is going to be a week that uh, melts uh, some uh, people's brains that are prone to wearing tinfoil hats because we've got this and then the Illuminati uh, shows up in the new Doctor Strange movie. So good week or I guess maybe a bad week for some of those folks. (laughs) I don't know that I care about all these things that they're just trying. Real life is worse than this. And so the idea that they're creating worlds and trying to create trauma and stuff, just watch the news. You'll see a lot of crap going on there that you can't deal with as it is. But I, I was determined this weekend I would finish out Ozark because I have stuck with Ozark through the whole run. And these last seven, they really should have been put together with the first seven of this season. I get their, their thinking behind it, but... Mm, it gets kind of murky in the first half of the second seven or the second, whatever this season is, the fourth slash fifth season, it's murky. And then when they try to wrap it all up, there's so much going on in the last episode. It's like, I should take notes because then I will understand what's, what's happening with all of this. But all along, you think, Have the Ozarks ever kind of complained about this series? I wonder if they really would like to say, you know what, we're not this dark. We're not this kind of filled with cartels and and drug dealers and uh, gambling people. Because I didn't ever remember the Ozarks to be like that. But they do bring it to a, a conclusion and they do a lot of flashbacks. There are a lot of flashbacks. So sometimes you'll see a character and you think, now, who was that one? Was that a relative or was that some stray guy who should have been somewhere else? And they, again, cartels. For some reason, I can't get my head around who's in what cartel in any movie because they all are trying to kind of backstab each other. So you're not sure if it was a backstabber or the real cartel people that were supposed to be following. Then politicians get in there too. So there's a lot that's unpacked. I think the last episode, it was directed by Jason Bateman. He'll probably get um, an Emmy nomination for directing. I don't think he'll get one. Well, maybe he will for acting, but he and Laura Linney don't really have those moments. Um, Julia Garner does. She gets her moments that she could get another Emmy out of this thing, but the rest of them, mm, okay. And Richard Thomas is kind of interesting as Laura Linney's dad. He has a couple of scenes that are very fascinating, but um, just remember this. This is, I'm gonna leave you with something that can kind of tease you. If you ever go to the Ozarks and you get in a swimming pool, I want you to say, I wonder about this swimming pool. That's all I want you to say. I mean, anytime that I get into a public swimming pool, there's usually some some version of that does cross my mind. <laughs> I want you to think about that swimming pool. As someone who has followed the show from the beginning and has been, you know, a passionate enjoyer of it, did it live up to your expectations? What was it? Was it satisfying as a finale and as a capper on on that show? I had an idea in my mind how it should end um, because I thought you could kind of straighten it out. And I thought I could also point toward a film perhaps. 
And there is the potential for a film after this, if that's what they're going for. Wouldn't but surprise me. I think they, they introduced more stray threads so that the only way you could really get rid of some of those threads is just to kill the person off that's related to it. But you wonder, like I, I said, where, what happened to the, the money in the, in the mausoleum? And where's the money in the walls? Where is this? I, I wanted all this money. I would have been every night been taking out a couple of bags full of bills just to be able to run away and create my own destiny. Yeah. But you watch it and it's good for a weekend. It was rainy this weekend. It was a great time to just kind of hunker in, iron, watch the Ozark, and you're good. What do you think about Netflix right now with, I mean, this was one of their tentpole franchises and it i mean to hear you tell it it definitely sounds like there could be spinoffs or i'm thinking you know the way that the mayans you know spun off of sons of anarchy and you've got you know el camino as the follow-up movie for breaking bad and better call saul is the so i mean there's definitely a lot of angles that they could a lot of roads that they could go down but where does this fit in the larger uh, scenario of where Netflix is at right now, do you think for them to be like, are they, are they sweating uh, the numbers? Oh, I think so. I think so. Because, you know, they threw, they were kind of the, the rich guy who comes into town and just throws money at everybody and says, yeah, make me a film, make me a film. That's good. And some did stick, some were good, but I don't think they had a long-term game plan in terms of how do we keep this going? And then as we know, in corporate America, you've got to do better than you did the last time. So just throwing money at things didn't really work for them. I think they were counting on this last year to be a big Oscar year. They were going to win their first Oscar for best picture. I think they had that in their mind and they threw a lot of money at promoting those things. And I think that that bothered people. I think it made them in the industry think, no, we're, I don't care how good this movie is. We're not giving it best picture just because of the way they behaved. And I think that hurt them. Actually, I think that Power of the Dog could have won best picture. But then you end up with something like Coda, which was heartwarming, which was another streaming service that could beat it. Um, there were a lot of issues there. So I think it's an attitudinal thing they've got to work on first and then find out who they want to be in business with. Not just anybody who has a name or might have made something big. They shouldn't be the one that just gets a deal. To your point, Chris, like not only is something like, uh, you know, Ozark ending, which is one of their tent poles, Stranger Things is going to be ending soon enough, too. And so that's another tent pole that they're going to lose. And then they're going to have to be relying even more on, you know, these reality shows or, you know, additional seasons of, you know, Bridgerton, which obviously does well for them, but like you can't stake everything on just those kind of shows because then, you know, even more people are going to leave your platform because, you know, they're not getting the, the scripted stuff that they want to see. So, yeah, this is uh, not, a, uh, not a good spot in terms of the content they got to offer right now. And you mentioned Bridgerton. I mean, that's one where that's, you know, related to the enormous deal that they gave Shonda Rhimes. And, you know, so that's something that they're having to pour a bunch of money into just from a contract standpoint. And then second season ha hasn't been getting nearly as much buzz. And it seems like the criticism is that there's not as much sex, which was really selling it the first time around. Uh, almost became a meme in and of itself. And yeah, Stranger Things is 
I think this is the first example of a of a show that's been broken in like the final season's been broken into two halves so they can carry the the success of that show into two different business quarters that they can show you know whatever numbers for it just seems like there's a I mean I'm sure that the Duffer brothers who show run Stranger Things are going to put a you know a fine end to that series I'm not like knocking from a creative standpoint but just from a business standpoint it seems very maybe not disingenuous but just very cynical so I don't know I I interrupted you earlier Bruce I apologize Jared were you gonna say something I thought Bruce, Bruce, I thought you were going to Oh, sorry. Oh, me. Yeah, well, no, I I, look at Ryan Murphy had a big deal like that, too. Where is that deal? Were we just getting Hollywood and that, uh, what was it, the other horror story that he threw out there? Is this it? I mean, that was, what, Ratchet? It was the politician, which went for a couple seasons. It was the, he did a couple of documentaries, one of which was the Andy Warhol thing, which I thought was pretty good. And there was what the Hollywood. Yeah. And then he had this, like, is it American horrors? There was one of those horror stories that he did that was like a, not serialized, but it was just, you know, one offs and two offs. Yep. And but he still gets to do, deal? he still gets to do whatever he wants at FX basically, I think. So on top of that, which is weird to be paying someone that much money and then to be like, Oh yeah. And you can still go make stuff somewhere else. Like, I think that's great for artists, but if you're a company like, Netflix, it doesn't make any sense to pay someone $300 million to be like, oh yeah, but you know, some of these other ideas, feel free to just take those wherever. We don't care. Yep. But who would you give deals to? Who should have a deal? Well, I mean, I I, I liked that they gave uh, Martin Scorsese almost $200 million or whatever it was to make the Irishman. That kind of stuff I'm totally fine with. Like they want to give money, a lot of money to big time prestige people. I'm all for that. So I don't know if some of those people necessarily want to go there now, maybe in part because of what you were kind of talking about, Bruce, of how they have this attitude of just throwing money around as opposed to like actually caring about some of the quality and the content sometimes. Well, they market beautifully. I mean, all the stuff that I've seen for the last few big movies that they've been pushing, it's gorgeous. They do coffee table books on each of them. They make sure that everything is presented well and it looks very classy, very classy. But in Hollywood, when you're fighting to get $50 to be able to do whatever, I think that that makes people like, wait a minute, how come they get money just to do whatever when we could use that $50 to make a whole film, you know? So I I think they need to be a little more creative in terms of how they spend the money. And I mean, you see that with a lot of the shows that they are in the process of canceling. I think Space Force is not coming back animated stuff is gone i know they had jeff smith who did the the bone comic uh, very notably that went into turnaround and is just kind of dead in the water over there and i don't know what it necessarily looks like going forward if they're still going to be chasing the the awards the same way they were i mean jared when you were saying with the the martin scorsese the irishman i mean that's one where i think the the benefit of them throwing all that money was in the hopes of getting awards recognition. They got nothing. Yeah. There are certain things that they have done that have been really wonderful, like the uh, the Orson Welles documentary, as you know, that was sort of the, the other side of the coin to... The other side of the wind. The other side of the wind. Yeah, the famously unfinished uh, film. But they did Mank, and that was a beautiful yep. film. And they uh, didn't they do Roma also? That mm-hmm. was Netflix Worldwide. Yeah. They have, they've had 
really any of those could have won best picture. I do think now they'll lean into the Asian market because they realize that Asian films are something that we really haven't seen that much. It could extend their reach a bit more. So I think some of those filmmakers will get some shots. Well, and, and to that point, one thing that, uh, along those lines that's uh, kind of interesting is that um, they uh, have the show uh, Old Enough, which if anyone has watched on Netflix, hmm. is really delightful. It's originally a show from Japan from like the 90s, but they've bought the rights to it, I guess, to show internationally where like these little kids are tasked with like running errands, basically. It's very low stakes, but it's like really wholesome and really enjoyable. And I thought it's interesting that they're just buying up like 30 year old things from Japan now and bringing them over here. And I'm wondering if they're going to do some more of that in the future, too. Where's my Flores Lava? Yeah, it's there coming. you go. There's another one. Yep. It's coming. I it's like coming. It. I watched it. That was pandemic viewing for me. Yep. Yeah. So it'll, it's interesting. We'll have to watch closely to see where they're going because it is curious to see what's happening there. Yeah. It makes me think of the like the early history of MTV, where you know they could basically print money with all of the music videos that they were doing. And then they transitioned into the real world. And then it was, oh, this is incredibly cheap content that we can make and it's it's ours and we can license it and, you know, just put it on, you know, whatever. And then you end up kind of where Netflix is at right now with weird game shows that are really cheap to produce. I mean, uh, is it cake? I mean, it seems like they filmed that over the course of like a week and a half, basically. And, you know, it was really charming. Uh, Jared, you mentioned the the Asian uh, market. I mean, pretty sure it was Netflix that picked up all the old episodes of Terrace House, which ended up being a little, you know, very similar in that kind of heartwarming <laughs> vein. Mm-hmm. But I'm intrigued to see uh, see where they go. And hopefully, like, they're not going away. It's just they're going to have to change their model and be a lot more judicious with how they're spending money because you've got, they used to be the big dog in the block. And now, Apple and Hulu and Amazon are in positions to just throw bottomless wells of money at franchises and undercut them. The Apple TV roster at this point is getting, you know, stronger and stronger all the time. Like they got that show, uh, what is it? Slow Horses now with uh, Gary Oldman that looks really good. You know, they've got the other stuff that's been up and running for a while. They've got uh, Martin Scorsese has a new movie for them coming out uh, later this year. So they're slowly adding more and more stuff and so that's going to be another problem for netflix as of course disney plus and amazon prime and all these places that have way more money to throw around than netflix does well and you see that apple doesn't do a lot of shows they kind of give you a you know it's like i'm going to introduce one this week and then maybe one in two weeks but it's with with netflix it's like three or four in a week and you can't keep track of them and you think this is too much content, too much content. And if they're going cheap with doing cheap game shows and things like that, I, I was a fan of the home edit, which was a thing about organizing the crap in your house. I liked it the first season and I realized now it's just a way to sell product. You know, take everything out of the box and put it in one of our boxes and then put it on your shelf. That's all that is. And so I think that those things don't go that way be more judicious. Don't, you don't need all those programs. You don't need to have 20 shows running that are brand new and just, you know, sell it the way you sell it. Yeah. And don't cut off the people on the, how many people they can share their number with. 
that's what really killed them. I mean, that's something they should have cracked down on a long time ago. And it's just, it's going to be that much harder because they let it go for so long, but it's not incredibly expensive. <laughs> you know, none of these things are, you know, nightmarishly expensive. I know that they add up and eventually it will be on the same amount as you would be paying for a cable subscription or a TiVo or whatever. But Bruce, you can be on my password. How about that? I'll let you Could on. I? Oh, I'll I'd love that. Yep. Yep. I would love that. I would be right there. Can I talk about something that's that is one of those kind of alternate programming things on another streamer? And it's on Disney Plus. It's called Sketchbook. And Sketchbook is a very fascinating film if you like animation, because it looks at different animators drawing characters and talking about their journey into animation. They all seem relatively shy for the most part, and they kind of buried themselves in drawing, and they showed what it takes to do this, and then they're kind of drawing all these characters. Well, the one I got to talk to, Samantha Vilfort, is very outgoing. She is like, I don't know how you put her in a room with other people and say, be quiet, because I think she, I think she's the, the social person of the bunch, but she talks about the process of drawing the character Mirabelle in Encanto, and it's very fascinating, and then she draws Mirabelle as she's as she's talking about it. But anyway, I got to I got to interview her and we talk about just everything. And yes, she does talk about Bruno. Big fan. And that interview will be coming up shortly. But first, I mean, it's been it's a it's a thin week. The big gorilla in the room is Dr. Strange and there's not a whole lot else to really talk about. So Jared McNett. Yes. Give us some fine words of wisdom to send us out into the world before we throw to this uh, fantastic interview that Bruce did. Sure. So if you are capable of not running your mouth uh, during a screening of a Liam Neeson movie, um, just carrying on a conversation with your friend that you went to see the movie with, even though there's only three people in the movie theater and the other person is trying to pay attention uh, to the movie, despite all your gambling behind him. Uh, if you're uh, capable of not doing that, you should go to the movie theater and screen something good. But if you want to just keep flapping your gums for almost two hours uh, during a movie where the audio is very tough to hear sometimes, and so the conversation going on behind you makes it that much worse. If, if you're incapable of avoiding that, then just uh, you know stream something at home uh, and you can talk all you want. That is one of the most bitter, <laughs> heady endings that I think we've ever had in the entire history of this show. And I'm here for it. I mean, whoever it was that uh, that set you off, I, I hope they had a, a horrible rest of their weekend. <laughs> Were you sitting behind me, Jared? <laughs> no, I was sitting in front of the, these two people that they were talking during the previews and I'm like, yeah, whatever, I don't care. Like I've seen all these previews in a way. And then I was like, maybe it'll die down once the movie starts, but it did not, it just ramped up. I've had it where they've, they've chomped on popcorn so loudly. I thought, God, what is this? What are they eating? It's not the same popcorn I have. And then, and rustling those bags. Oh my God. You want to grab the bag from them and throw it and say, enough, shut up. We're here at the movie theater. But I have not done that. I have just thought that. It's going to be our new tagline is enough, shut up. We're at the movie theater. <laughs> Stick around. We got a Bruce's interview. Meet Samantha Vilfort. Yeah, you'll love her. You'll love her. She's very exciting, lots of fun. And uh, I think it gives you some insight into that Disney world, a chance to see how they actually create a character and what does go in and what's tossed out. 
You can find us on all the podcast platforms, wherever you'd be listening to things, just search for streamed and screened. You'll find us on social media, et cetera. We'll have links to all the, the movies that we talked about and uh, enjoy your afternoon. Enjoy this interview and uh, we'll see you guys next week. What's it like to be a Disney animator? Well, we got a chance to talk with Samantha Vilfort, one of the people behind Encanto. She talks about everything, and yes, she does talk about Bruno. Hey, Sam. Hi, Bruce. How <laughs> are you? This. Yeah. I am so excited, but I gotta ask you, I was reading the, the Art of Encanto, the book. Yes! A lot of different, you know, uh, looks for Mirabelle. Yes. And I noticed you have ones in there, but when do you guys decide that? When do you say, this is it? <laughs> this is it. Um, I think it's an ongoing process uh, in story. When we get on there, it's normally pretty early. Like sometimes even before the character designers have fully come on. So sometimes in story, we're making up our own little details and someone starts drawing Mirabelle this way and then someone else draws her another way. And then um, it kind of coalesces and someone will draw something and you'll see the character designers. I think for Mirabelle, everybody was excited that she had glasses because she's supposed to see her family clearer than anybody else. Like it's kind of that stuff that we're like, oh yeah, she shouldn't have glasses. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, and what if she does embroidery? Like what are some hobbies if she doesn't have a gift? And then that will make its way into the design of like, okay, if she does embroidery, maybe she's embroidered her whole dress and she loves her family. So all the dress has details of or like little symbols of her family embroidered on them. So all that stuff kind of trickles in uh, with art and story kind of working together until the directors kind of look at it and they go, oh my gosh, that's our girl, you know? Um, and I think it's kind of a gut instinct feeling. There's a point where um, they're like, okay, we have to start modeling her. We have to start animating her. And then directors will be like, okay, that's the one, this hair, this glasses, blah, blah, blah. It just, it will just start to feel like the character we have in our heads. Um, and I know long answer, but, uh, that's kind of the process. It'll just, it just suddenly gels. It just suddenly feels right. You, and then it's all good. Know, all these glasses are going to be impossible to draw. Yeah, I mean that when you're boarding, you're like, okay, two circles, boom, those are the glasses, and then uh, you kind of move on. Um, but it was very fun because it's also like in animation, you can do business with the glasses, like she can take them off and clean them and stuff. So sometimes part of the costume is also really great for us because then we get to think of fun acting with parts of the costume as well. So do you want more things as an animator? Do you want to have more things in there so there's more to play with, or is it better to be simple? Um, I think I, obviously you don't want too much or else it kind of feels like, you know, a kid in an arcade or something. There's so much going on. You're like, wait, wait, wait. But I think when it comes to stuff like character, like it's, it's stuff that you do in yourself, like with yourself of like, oh, I'm nervous. Maybe I'll take off my glasses and clean them. Just things around that make it feel relatable and real are like kind of the dream for, uh, for when you're drawing or trying to figure out a new character or their mannerisms and stuff and trying to make it feel like a real person instead of um, something everybody came up with in the room, you know? <laughs> Is there a different sensibility with female animators than with male animators? Can you tell? Oh, uh, no, I think I think what's great is that all our animators are super sensitive and super, you know, kind of cued into the human condition. So I think whether uh, anybody's animating like a different gender, I think everybody's so good at uh, just kind of going into Mirabelle's headspace. I think everybody becomes Mirabelle when they're animating Mirabelle or whatever. But I think I love uh, the different sensibilities and different uh, personalities I can see. Like there's levels of animators that I'm like, oh, only, you know, Alan Ostergaard could have done that scene or, you know, something like that, where I'm like, oh, there's such a sensibility to Alan that I'm like, oh, he would 
do something, a great, nice little kind of gesture or touch like that. I think everybody has their own signature, but I don't think there's any like, you know, big gender differences. So is there you in her at any point? I mean, do you, can you look and say that's, that's me? Oh, I mean, I think obviously she's, uh, she's many different people, but I think in the way I, Mirabelle is always me, it's like, I feel everybody's Mirabelle at some part of their lives where they go into a room and they feel like everybody else in the room has had it figured out, you know, or, or is like a little bit more talented or a little bit more special. Definitely at Disney, when you walk around, you're like, wait, why am I here? Everybody has magical powers, you know? Um, so in that way, I, when Mirabelle feels a little bit kind of unsure or feels a little bit like, you know, I'm just a person, I feel like everybody can kind of get into that. And I've definitely felt like that many times of like it being a little out of your depth or, or trying to, you know, make sure, you know, you're, someone's proud of you. Like, that's very real. Like, you, you know, my parents, I'm always excited to like, be like, oh, I'm okay. I'm doing well, you know, and like getting that approval from your family, I think is like, I really connected to that because I think everybody wants their family to look at them and be like, you're doing a great job. <laughs> you know, well, you are, you are. Yeah. <laughs> Watching the, the, the other episodes, a lot of the people who are animators are very kind of shy. Right. Is that common or are you the exception? <laughs> um, no, I think I think it takes all kinds. I mean, I like what's I think a lot of people when, you know, you grow up drawing kind of go into the paper a little bit and uh, you can get lost and then you look up and it's five hours later and everybody's like, where were you? And you're like, oh, sorry, I was locked in my room drawing all these crazy drawings. Um, but I think I really love people. I think in story, like I, cause it's such a collaborative medium to animation. You do go to work, you do go talk to people for, you know, eight hours about Mirabelle's feelings. Um, and I love that part of the process because it energizes me to work with other people and inspires me to work alongside artists that I admire. So it kind of amps me up way more than if I was like alone working, you know? Sure. Um, so I think there's a little bit of both where sometimes you're like, okay, I just got to focus on my drawing. But for me, I'm, very much people person, very excited to get in there. So you are one of the only animators I've ever met who has long nails. What <laughs> is that? No, I know. And don't worry, they're they're fake. <laughs> they're like it seems to be I, normally they are fully like stress bitten down just because I'm always like, oh my God, I'm terrible at nail biting and I'm trying to break that. <laughs> um, but luckily they're not too long to hold the pen. I always test. I'm like, okay, can I hold a Cintiq pen? Is it okay? Yes. Um, but having a good long nail in LA is always kind of fun. You know, it's a good thing. It's a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So how was it then having the camera on you? Was that a strange situation? Oh, completely. I mean, I, I love, I mean, so many, I feel like uh, so many people because of social media and stuff are maybe a little bit more comfortable in front of the camera now. But for me, I was uh, a little nervous because, you know, you never, you also are not normally in a room where everybody's just looking at you, listening to what you say. And you're like, okay, no one else is going to talk, you know, like, this is a solo show. And normally I'm in, a, in an environment where I'm collaborating and you're one of many people talking. So that was kind of different. And uh, hoping that all the makeup looked good and everything looked right is, uh, is definitely something I don't normally feel during the day. And how hard was it to draw Mirabelle and under those circumstances? <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I I had practiced beforehand, so hopefully it looks good and everybody sings it. But um, it was definitely different, especially because I draw digitally a lot. So I, there are times ah. sometimes when I'm drawing on paper that I'll like tap the paper, um, like it's my iPad or something, and I'll I'll be like, oh my gosh, like there's no delete, you know. And I think that's sometimes the best way to learn though, when you have no kind of delete button, because uh, digital you can always kind of go back and erase, but 
sometimes I like the kind of immediacy of paper and it is nerve wracking in a way because there is no delete, but it's also fun because it's just you and this, this piece of paper. And sometimes with screens and stuff, you can always go to the next tab or do something else. And there's always something else, but it's like just you and the paper is kind of a magical little experience. It's do friends and family then hit you up all the time and say, draw, draw this for me. I want you to, you <laughs> yes, know. yes. Uh, I think if you're a kid growing up that draws, I got asked to do my early art career, <laughs> which is me in high school was definitely doing a lot of logos, <laughs> a lot of posters for people's high school drama shows, stuff like that. You kind of get pulled in and you're like, yeah, I could do that. Um, so definitely there's a level of like, okay, she can draw, but I'm no graphic designer. So I was always like, if you, if this is good, you know, I can do this, but uh, definitely animation is always where I was like heading to. So. So now you're drawing Mirabelle all the time for people. <laughs> yes. I love her. And it's, it's not work, you know, it's it definitely, I think other people have spoken on this, but it feels like somebody, you know, and I think that's really the bizarre part of working in these films. is like, I thought about her like almost every day for two years. So it feels like, Oh, I, I'll draw you a picture of my friend. And last question, when you're at the studio, do you get to talk about Bruno? <laughs> that's so funny. It is my job to talk about Bruno. So yes, uh, we had many, many conversations on him, but definitely leading up outside world when he was in production, I could not talk about Bruno. That was, see how that is? See how that is? Yeah. Well, you know, if I ever see you in person, I'm going to say, draw me. Come on. Yeah. Draw oh, me Bruce, you got it. got to do it so for there. me. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. That does it for another episode of Streamed and Screened. Thank you so much to Bruce for that wonderful interview. Also, thank you to Jared. You can find all of our information in the show notes. Connect with us there. We'll also have in the show notes links to where you can find the movies and TV shows and all that good stuff that we mention. I'm Chris Lay. Uh, the show is produced by myself, Jared, and Bruce. And I am the one who records and edits it. We will be back next week. Until then... See something good. Enough. Shut up. We're here at the movie theater.